on the mountain, in the valley, in the crowded streets, or the empty desert, in our hope, and in our waiting, we are never alone. God is with us. Good morning, Bethel. Say Merry Christmas. It is that time of the year. You know, one of the things that I'm always amazed about when it comes to Christmas time is how an, an artist thinks that they need to make a Christmas album. You know, you have all of these major artists. Uh, it seems like they can't be fulfilled unless they've made a, a Christmas album. Some of the ones that I've seen recently or in previous years, I thought, surely we as a humanity could have done without this album and been okay. So here's one of them that I saw recently. There you go. <laughs> David Hasselhoff, The Night Before Christmas. I, I don't think we really needed that, that Christmas album. That was one. You got, how many even knew that David Hasselhoff made a Christmas album? Or even that he could sing. Yeah, I didn't know that. Yes. All right, so there's one. I got one more for you. Here's another one. Yeah. Kenny Chesney, All I Want for Christmas. Is that not like the weirdest Christmas album, like picture? Oh, sorry about that. Sorry about that. That's a weird picture, though. I mean, come on, for a Christmas album. You know, the, the passage of Scripture we're going to look at today, Paul says, or the scholars would say, this is Paul most likely putting a hymn of the early church into words. He's writing to the church at Colossian and, uh, Colossae, and he's really, he's giving a very clear depiction of who Jesus is, and then he brings it all back around. And we're going to look at these seven verses today. He's going to bring it all back around and say, all that he did, all that we worship and sing about, it was for you. It was for you. And we're going to go through these, this, these verses today line by line because I, what I want you to see is in, in what happened at Christmas that God did it to be with us. God with us. You know, starting in verse 15 of Colossians chapter 1, Paul, he gives us one of the clearest depictions of who Jesus is. Short answer, Jesus is God, but Paul's going to tell us that in six different ways as we look at in this verse to make it crystal clear who Jesus is. Let's begin reading in Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. Paul says, He is the image of the invisible God. Let's start with the end of that sentence. God is invisible. He is spirit. Human eye cannot see him. But Jesus, when he came to this earth, he became the image of the invisible God. You say, well, wait a minute, isn't man, Pastor Rob, you said in the past, isn't man made in the image of God too? Yes. But what Paul is saying here is something completely different. To say that we are made in the, in the image of God 
means that there are some things about us that resemble God, our, our, our way of thinking, our, our relational abilities. But Jesus, the writer of Hebrews is going to say, is the exact representation of God. Hebrews 1.3, it says, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. The, the writer of Hebrews says he is the exact imprint. All that God is, Jesus is. If Jesus were not fully God, then he would not be the exact imprint or the exact representation of God. Keep going in that verse 15. It says he is the firstborn over all creation. Now this word kind of trips people up sometimes, this phrase. People see firstborn, they say, does this mean that Jesus was the first thing that, I mean, that God created? No, that's, that, this has a dual meaning. Like, Callie is my firstborn. She was the first thing that Rachel and I created together. But that's not what this phrase means. The firstborn can mean two things in Hebrews. It can mean the firstborn that, in a family, but it can also mean a position of inheritance. For example, Isaac was called Abraham's firstborn, even though technically Ishmael was his firstborn. But Isaac was the one who received the position of inheritance. We see this with Jacob and Esau, the same deal. In this case, firstborn, it definitely means position. Look in verse 16. Let's keep reading. For by him, meaning Jesus, all things were created in heaven and in earth. You see, if Jesus was a created thing, then this verse would mean that Jesus created himself because all things on heaven, in heaven and on earth would include Jesus, which is, of course, impossible. It says he is visible and invisible, whether thrones of dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. Wow. Jesus is the position of the firstborn. All of creation was made by him and made for him. Artists, says, or artists say that every good work, great work of art, there is a piece of the soul of the artist left in that work. You get to know the artist by looking at their art. You think about the, the art that Dr. Lawrence had up there last week with the hands touching. That was, you know, the Sistine Chapel with Michelangelo. And you look at that, you look at these great pieces of art, and you get to know the heart of the artist by looking at their art. And that's how creation is. Scripture says that the heavens declare the glory of God. You get to know a piece of God by looking into his handiwork, his artwork of the heavens. You think about it like this. It's like a, a wedding ring. No bride should say that the ring is enough. The ring should point you to the greatest gift, which is the husband. The ring itself is not enough. It's the, the representation that she is married to the husband. Let's keep reading here. Verse 17. And he is before all things, 
and in him all things hold together. That's a big verse. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Paul says that he is really the ground of our being. The best way for me to illustrate this is to think about it in terms of the atom. Physicists still cannot figure out to this day how the atom holds together. Nucleus of a common oxygen atom has eight protons, which have a positive charge and eight neurons with no charge. They should fly apart. It does not make sense. Earlier physicists have discovered that like charges repel each other and opposites attract, yet here were eight positively charged protons just hanging out together. It does not make sense. And the negatively charged elements of the atom are out there spinning around the atom. In the 1920s and 30s, scientists discovered that there was a, an incredible power just lurking in the atom, holding all of the protons in the nucleus of the atom together. They called this nuclear force. It was mysterious and hard to understand, so hard that only Einstein and a few other people could really even grasp this concept. When they fired protons into the nuclei of the atom, it would release an incredible energy that we now have harnessed today called nuclear power. This power holds the nucleus together, but they are not quite sure how it works. It's kind of like gravity. We know that gravity works because we're all staying on the ground and we're not just floating up in the sky. We all know that gravity is there and it works, but scientists don't quite know how gravity works. They, they know it works, but not the why. And I'm not saying that there's not a natural physical principle built into the atom that keeps it together. I suspect there is. I'm saying that it's mysterious. It's a mysterious part of the universe. Invisible power behind the atom. There's a mysterious power in the universe being that gives it and us life. His hand is in everything. It's in you. It's his power, it's joy, it puts a longing in you. Our lives, they fall apart if Jesus is not at the center. Like the earth revolving around the sun, if our lives do not revolve around Christ, they eventually fall apart. He is the firstborn. It's by it's all him. It's for him. It's all about him. He was the beginning. He was the story in the middle. And he will be there at the end. Do not lose sight of that. He is before all things. And in him, all things hold together. He holds it all. Verse 18 and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Now here's another kind of weird verse. Let's pick this apart for a minute. Two ideas here. Firstborn from the dead. In Jesus, we get a glimpse of what we and creation will be 
in the future. When God comes back and he redeems this world from all of its sin, we get a glimpse of that. We see in Jesus what God is making us to be. He is also the head of the body, meaning he is the source of new life. So that the closer we are to him, the more life flows in us. You want God's resurrection power in your heart, in your relationships, in your family? Paul's saying, draw close to him. And here's this next part of this verse, and this is going to be the application that we're going to hit on at the end. He says, that in everything he may be preeminent. That next part of the verse, that in everything he may be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Verse 19. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. All of it. There was no like God pie where there's three sections of, you know, God the Father, God the Holy Spirit, God the Son. But they were all together three in one. It is a mysteriousness of the Trinity, one God in three persons. But Paul's point is this, as Christ dwells in you, the fullness of God dwells in you. And let that just capture you for a moment. As the fullness of Christ dwells in you, God dwells in you. Verse 20, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Has there been any other government in the history of this world that has done that for you? No. There has never been a ruler, there has never been a government that has come and done for you what Jesus Christ did. We were the criminals. He was the one who paid our debt. Not only did he come after us to rescue us, he paid our debt in our place. He did it himself so that he might be preeminent in our lives. That's why he did it. It's Paul's way of saying that he might be number one. And then the last part of this, this is how Paul makes the ending of this verse so personal for us. He gives us all of this big theological stuff. Here's who Jesus is in these six different ways that we just walked through. And he brings it back to us. He says, in you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. He did it all for you and me. Paul says, that is what I want for you. He says, church at Colossian and church here Today, I want you to sit stunned 
in that in awe of who Jesus is and what he has done and let your life flow out of that. Never get over this idea of God with us, of why he came to be with us and what he did while he was with us and the fact that he is still with us today. Allow that to just put your heart and mind in awe. You know, Paul would say, I want you to get to know God not so much in a doctrinal sense, but in a relational sense. Your spiritual life will never take off until what you know doctrinally turns into what your heart knows relationally. Now, my, as Paul said, I pray that he may become preeminent. May Christ be preeminent in our worship. Paul can talk about these things without breaking in. Paul's talking about these things, but as we see here, and as scholars have told us, he has a hard time talking about them without breaking into a hymn of worship and a hymn of praise. His life exploded with this reality. And I want you to kind of just ponder this idea of the incarnation. To me, it's the greatest miracle that has ever happened on this earth, that God came to be with us. Think of it. As the Son of God, he could feed 5,000 people, but as the Son of Man, he became hungry so he could say to you and me, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. As the Son of God, he turned water into wine. But as the Son of Man, he was thirsty so he could say to you and me, whoever thirsts, let him come to me and drink. The water that I give him will become in him a well of water springing up into eternal life. As the Son of God, he spoke the worlds into existence. As the Son of Man, he grew weary and tired. So he could say to you, come unto me, all you who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. As the Son of God, he dwelt in the, places, the palaces of glory. As the Son of Man, he was born in a stable and grew up in poverty with no place to lay his head so that he could promise me an inheritance that will never be taken away. Though he was rich, the writer says, for my sake he became poor, that I through his poverty may become rich. He took the stable so that he could prepare for me a place with many mansions. As the Son of God, he was adored by angels and the perfections of holiness. As the Son of Man, he was condemned to die by Pilate. Scourged by whips, scorned by man, God made him who knew no sin to become sin for you and me. Paul saw all of that and saw that although he looked weak the first time he came, he will come again and he will not look weak the second time. At his first coming, he was born in a stable. But we know that Scripture tells us he will come again 
He will come to take those of us who believe in him back to heaven with him. And when he comes the next time, it will not be in a stable, but it will be riding on a horse in the clouds. At his first time, his first coming, he was crowned with thorns. At his second coming, he will come as ruler of the universe. At his first coming, he yielded up his body to crucifixion, his back to whips, his cheeks that were plucked or his hair was plucked. But at his second coming, the government will be upon his shoulder, as the prophet Isaiah says, and his name shall be called Wonderful, the Mighty God, the Prince of Peace. At his first coming, his enemies cried, We will not have this man to reign over us. But John says, at his second coming, every knee will bow and proclaim that he is Lord. He's coming again, and every eye will see him and fall immediately upon their faces in worship. But we have no reason to fear, because at his first coming, he came to bear our judgment. He stood in my place. He stood in your place, so that at his second coming, there would be no condemnation for those who were in Christ Jesus. Because scripture says, Paul says in Romans, that there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. As you think about all of this, how does this not make your heart want to burst in worship for our God? How does this not make you want to make Jesus preeminent in our lives? Paul said in the last part, I'll read it again, and you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, meaning he made it right before God with his death. When it says he reconciled by his death, he reconciled our sin before a holy God in order to present you holy, blameless, and above reproach before him. He said, I'm going to take your penalty upon me. So you can have a relationship with God. So that when God sees you, he doesn't see your sin. He sees my righteousness. All of this was for me. The joy of the Christian life is found in worship. And I don't mean just the songs that we sing here. I'm talking about the worship that consumes you to the point where the majesty and the glory of what God has done for you so that nothing else pales in comparison to the life you have in Jesus until you begin to wrestle with a passage of Scripture and wrestle with who Jesus is and just be speechless, dumbfounded, in awe of who Christ is and what he has done for you, you'll struggle to find joy in any part of your life. 
you won't find joy in religion. Joy is not found in keeping the rules or completing the assignments. The joy of Christianity is not found in how much you know or how much you've learned or how much you do. Joy in Christianity is found when your heart overflows in worship. When your, your eyes begin to tear up thinking about the joy of Christ. We talk about the glory of God, of what he did to rescue you who were his enemy. And he put the fullness of himself in you. Until you get that, this life will always have a big, huge hole. You'll continue looking and wanting never finding satisfaction, knowing that there's always something more out there. And that more is Jesus. We were created for one purpose, and that is to worship our God and our Savior. Worship is found in the mystery of what God did in the incarnation for you. Is your daily life filled with worship for our Savior. Are you in awe? Are you moved by the fact that God is with us? Let's let him be preeminent in our lives this Christmas season. Let's pray.